0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu.
1: Let's welcome Michaeline and Anand. Welcome back.
2: All right, so uh, I'm going to start and just Take a few minutes to talk about my background and just uh, kick off the discussion pretty much with a few few thoughts that I had planned and before I got started, I just wanted a show of hands for how many people are actually starting started or actually running a company today in the audience okay how many people are running a company and not talking about it <laughs> okay uh, how many people would like to be an entrepreneur when you okay how, how many of you are here for some other reason because you like films or because You really don't care about for-profit entrepreneurship, but you're interested in social entrepreneurship or movies or documentaries or other reasons. Okay.
0: How many don't know why they're here? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Literally. Um, So what I wanted to do was um, I was just, you know, thinking about uh, sort of what I felt when I was sitting in those seats not so long ago, like, like Tom said, And as I was thinking about coming back here uh, for ETL, I was thinking about what ETL did to me, you know, more than anything else. And the one thing that I remember is uh, that it it just taught me to think very freshly about problems and about what I'd like to do and about basically what I would like to do after I left Stanford. So I wanted to take a few minutes to share a few thoughts about, um, you know, coming back to Stanford at ETL eight years later and sort of what those eight years have been for me, and some of the um, things that have stood out, and things that I've learned. And obviously, we'll say, do the same thing with my and then segue into Tapestries of Hope, which is the documentary that we're working on. So um, the, first, the first kind of general thought that I wanted to throw out, and you know, obviously this is a discussion, is one thing that I learned from ETL and a lot of Stanford experiences was even though you leave Stanford and you get a job, or you start a company, um, and I was just really fortunate that, you know, right after I left Stanford, um, I was fortunate to meet a couple of amazing co-founders, uh, Dan Turchin and Prateek Nahata, and start AeroPrice. And maybe, maybe some of you in, in here remember, maybe, you know, a lot of you have, may have forgotten, 2002 and 2003 were not exactly the best years in recent past to start a company. And so, um, In late 2001, 2002, when I, you know, just walked to a lot of people and said, hey, I'm leaving Stanford and I'm starting a company, I didn't exactly get, you know, the kind of response that I wanted. A lot of people were like, you're doing it either because you couldn't get a job or, you know, um, it was difficult to get a job uh, because you couldn't get the job you wanted or because you're just crazy or, you know, someone's brainwashed you into this. Um, And so what, what I wanted to do was a little bit later, I wanted to show you what sort of shaped my thinking in the face of a lot of very unpleasant uh, reaction and responses. So I wanted to share the story before I did of this company that a lot of you know, and I'm a you know, very regular customer of, but it's this whole idea of keeping your mind open to new possibilities and new ideas, even if you're already busy doing something. And so the story goes that there was this company ma- making washing powder, right? They were a market share leader in several states making washing powder, and they did reasonably well. Um, they were still a private company, and they were family owned. And the family treated, you know, all these employees really well. And at some point, this marketing guy came up with uh, the idea to give this promotional item if people bought two packs of washing powder, right? So this marketing guy said, "Well, there's this new nifty thing called chewing gum, right? And people can just eat it. And if they don't like it, they can spit it out. I don't know what you'd really do with it. It's not candy." but we could give it away for free, right? And maybe it would make people buy washing powder. And so that's what they did. And it turned out that people bought washing powder because they wanted the chewing gum. And suddenly people realized there's something going on here. You know, people who wouldn't normally buy washing powder are coming and buying powder (laughs) because they want the gum. And so they said, well, maybe we should ask them to pay money for the gum. And they wouldn't buy that much washing powder because we can't make that much (laughs) washing powder. And that way they would go away and we will be able to sell as much washing powder as we can make. And then it turns out that people paid money to buy washing powder. and Sorry, people, people paid money to buy chewing gum and then they didn't buy washing powder anymore. And then the company said, maybe we should sell chewing gum. And then that company we know as Wrigley's Chewing Gum today. And so I wanted to talk about how even if you're already doing something, it's it's a little bit important to you know just keep an open mind and not look at something and go, yeah, it's interesting, but it's not for me because I'm an investment banker and you know I don't make money from this in the next three months. And a lot of what I got involved with is largely because you know even though it wasn't bread and butter stuff for me short in the short term, um, I just kind of remembered what it was like you know to be Wrigley's chewing gum back in the day, and maybe there's. There's a similarity in, in my life and a lot of people here. So um, the, 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 the sort of other side of this with respect to social entrepreneurship is um, a lot of you may know Shashi Tharoor, who uh, is a very well-known Indian writer, but recently he became uh, pretty well-known because he was the Undersecretary General of the UN. And um, somebody was asking him, you know, you are a fiction writer in India, and you know, you're kind of this intellectual... And then why did you get involved with the U.N.? Because it's the ultimate, you know, bureaucratic organization, and people kind of go through the, the, the grunt of being in the U.N. with the hope that over the long term they can achieve some social change. And, and his response, I thought, was very relevant to the whole Wrigley story, is that you see a lot of what he called problems without passports, right? And you don't, you, don't, you, you see a problem which can't be solved with one skill set, and which can't be solved with one background and with one experience. But it's important to kind of jump in into the problem with the background that you have, even though it really has no passport. You know, it could be a social entrepreneurship problem disguised as a movie. It could be a, uh, you know, chewing gum company disguised as a washing powder company. You never know, but it's important to kind of look at a problem and say, I'm not going to give it up because the way I'm structured right now, I'm not in the best position to do anything about it. So I kind of wanted to leave that thought, and we'll be coming back to that um, as we uh, go through this. Um, The other thought I wanted to share was, um, I was thinking about, you know, the past eight years and why I'm here and and how those eight years have gone. And one of the things that jumped out at me was, um, you know, how this whole tapestries thing began for me. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go into a lot of detail, obviously, about it, but I remember, you know, a lot of... How many, how many have seen Blood Diamond, the movie with DiCaprio? And so, um, I watched Blood Diamond, and it was probably probably the best movie of last year. Um, entertaining, well-made, you know, very authentic about Africa. And I remember the movie was done, and, you know, there's this, there's this line that gets repeated in the movie, which says, you know, this is Africa. You know, so they, they say TIA, and then they sort of understand what it means, right? And I remember when the movie was done, I thought to myself, you know, I have no idea what that means. You know, it kind of sounds cool when two people say TIA to each other, and they kind of know what each other means. And I was telling myself, boy, it would be great if I got involved with something to do with Africa. And then I laughed to myself and I said, there's really no way I'm going to get involved with anything to do with Africa. And I kind of laughed at myself and said, well, you know, maybe 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I should remember that I was really kinda, I really like Blood Diamond and I should do something about it. And, and of course, you know, a lot has happened since then and we'll talk about that. But, um, the, um, uh, so, so that was sort of the second, second idea is sometimes things may happen where it has no direct relevance to what you're doing then, but the thing that, that, um, again, sort of made me connect that with whatever happened next was um, that, you know, I, I remember, um, um, my dad and I are really very close, but we never really have these long conversations and we're not, it's not a very emotional relationship, uh, like most, you know, dad-son relationships, I guess. Um, and I remember the night before I was leaving India to come to Stanford, um, I felt like there was, there was just so much going on because it was the first time I was leaving home and uh, probably leaving home for a significantly large period of time, although nobody really wanted to talk about it. But I remember having this conversation with him saying, you know, I remember that my family essentially sacrificed a lot um, you know, uh, in terms of their survival and our survival. And they, what I remember they sacrificed the most was they sacrificed their ability to really dream really big. right? Because they were really concerned about what would that do to these guys? What would that do to the children? What would that do to the family? And I was just asking him, you know, did, did he have any regrets about the fact that they really didn't give themselves the ability to dream big and you know, we found ourselves in a situation where we were you know, doing well as a family, but really what they were proud of was the fact that I was going to Stanford to study. And I remember one thing that he said, which, which again is very relevant to this situation, this conversation, is he was saying that everything that they had done, my parents and the previous generation, was so that everybody like me could have really big dreams. And that it didn't stop us from thinking really big because we didn't have to worry about survival. And I always told myself that if I want to fail, I want to fail really big. I I don't want to fail because I dreamt really small and that that didn't matter. So in terms of sort of how I thought about every project that I got involved with, I'd rather go for broke and then fail big rather than saying, because I'm very unlikely to succeed, I'm going to think of something really small to do and convince myself that I can do that and, and succeed at that really small uh, you know, goal that I had. So again, that was, that was, that's a theme that we'll probably be revisiting. And in the interest of time, I'll just move on to one, one other really um, uh, sort of core theme of, of uh, why I'm really happy to be here. And before that, if we can get all this going, I just wanted to segue into, um, I wanted to play a, a, just a little slide set and then we'll come back to my third point. I kind of just wanted to leave with a final thought that, um, you know, a lot of times people, I mean, again, to the, to the earlier point about the size of uh, the dream that you want to have, um, if, if the goal is to catch a big fish, and you know, if the goal is to go after something big, there's really no point in trying to swim in waters that are really shallow. So, you know, um, I think it was a David Lynch uh, idea that the whole notion is if you want to solve a problem at a certain level, or whether it's, you know, business problem or a social entrepreneurship problem, it's really important to take it on at a very deep level, because otherwise, you know, the, the problem and the solution are, are both shallow, and I don't think, you know, it really uh, makes a huge difference. So with that, we can move to Michaeline's part.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, I know you've both met Tom and Deborah, but I think one of the things that um, we all realize tonight is how all of us connected through Deborah. and one of the things I will talk about later is how critical um, connections are, and in fact, um, through a Facebook connection, I believe that um, my life was saved in Zimbabwe. So we'll talk a little bit about that, and I'll give you just a brief background. I come mostly from corporate America. I spent many years uh, down in Hollywood with Disney, Amblin, Hollywood Pictures, Mattel, and I came up here to run Sega's entertainment group when they were at the height of the video game business. And then um, at one point I sort of came to the realization that in corporate life, at least at that time, we never asked ourselves the question, should we be doing this? Yes, it'll make us a lot of money, but you know, what are the, what's the impact of what we're doing? So that's part of why I shifted into New Gear and went out on my own. At that point I worked with uh, Nike and IMG and I did a lot of sports licensing deals. I did a lot of technology deals and application technologies and video games. And then truly decided that um, I needed to work for my heart. And I did a film uh, called Flash Cards, I did a short film called Flash Cards that won uh, a number of awards and screened at the Cannes Film Festival. And the idea behind it, which is really the cornerstone of what we do with Freshwater Spigot and what I'm doing with Anand, is you use film as a way to change the world. Um, we're going to tell you a little story here. I'm going to have Anand write a few things on the board. Can you just write those three? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Anand's going to write a few things on, on the board, and the key, the key thing whenever we decide to do a project is three questions. You have to tell a powerful story. How do we tell that powerful story and create global awareness? And most importantly, how can you create change? So... After I did this film called Flashcards, we did a national curriculum on child sexual abuse. And we couldn't get that curriculum anywhere in the United States. So it's being, we actually um, had word from the Canadian Mounties and Canadian law enforcement and the curriculum is being used in Canada. And then it also is being used in Africa, in many parts of Africa. So um, let's see, I guess it was last February. um, There was a woman I had heard about in Zimbabwe, Betty McConey. Uh, For for those of you who don't know the situation in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe has been ruled by a dictator for the last 28 years. Initially he went in as a freedom fighter, and then became corrupt and actually um, basically turned the country into a great deal of poverty and destruction. Um, Has anyone been following the news lately on Zimbabwe? Any of you? Okay, so they've just had an election recently, they were hoping to oust President Mugabe. Um, most people believe they did oust him, but he's refusing to relinquish power. And that's sort of the backdrop of what's going on in Zimbabwe. Um, we ended up wanting to do this film on, um, called Tapestries of Hope, and the powerful story we wanted to tell was this woman, Betty McConey, who's over in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, men have been counseled by their traditional healers, which is similar to a shaman here. A Native American culture, even Western doctors. They've been counseled that if they rape a virgin, they will cure their AIDS. And so um, not only have men um, believed this and infected young children with AIDS, now Zimbabwe is the number one AIDS capital of the world. So not only are young girls being raped to cure AIDS, but actually these young girls contract AIDS and give them to their children as well. So you're seeing three and four generations of AIDS victims based on this myth that if you rape a virgin, you'll cure your AIDS. So Betty McConey is this woman who, born and raised in Zimbabwe, who actually is on the ground. Um, she has a core team, team of people she works with with the Girl Child Network. And her her role is to go out and save these kids from rape and abuse. And, and frankly, in a third world country, she does a far better job than we do in the United States. And I'll tell you why. Um, she actually has this core team. There's a a team that she calls Mr. Rescue and his team. And they go out in these big white pickup trucks and they actually get text messages about a child who's being raped or you know her grandfather believes that if he rapes her that he will cure his AIDS. And they literally go out and pluck the child from the environment. And so this woman and her team put their life at risk every single day. So when I'd heard about this... uh, I had no desire to go to Africa. Anand had, had a, a different idea, but I always <laughs> ended up with parasites overseas, and I said, nope, I'm not going. And um, there's a woman, Paula Johnturco, who's a photojournalist, and she has a book out now called Women Who Like the Dark. And Betty McConey is the very first chapter in the book. Uh, it might, I think it's here at Stanford. I, I believe Paula has spoken here before. But it's really worth taking a look at it because it's people around the globe who are making a big difference. And so eventually I ended up uh, I had called because Betty McConey was coming into town and discovered um, that I'd love to go hear her speak. And when I called uh, the local nonprofit group, the next thing I knew I was having lunch or having breakfast with Betty. And after Betty and I talked, uh, the rest was kind of history because I knew what she was doing and I was so inspired by what she was doing that I thought we needed to go over and tell the story. Yeah. So we went over last August and film for a week. Um, we actually sat down with the traditional healers. We talked about why they counsel men to rape virgins. We had uh, probably about 35 stories from the young girls on who were raped or sexually abused. And then we watched what the Girl Child Network did on the ground. And one of the things they do there, which was so staggering because it's so simple and it doesn't cost any money, which is when a child is traumatized, they actually, the first thing they do to a child when they bring her in, is um, they say, how can I help you? It's, it's not, here's what we know is good for you, here's what we need to do. In in our U.S. culture we basically say it, it's mandated by state and federal law, if a child is abused you automatically take them from their environment. So we don't ask them a lot of questions. We just take them from an environment and put them into social services and their chances of being abused or neglected are three times as likely. So. <coughs> What Betty does literally is, how can I help you? And just by that little thing, they actually re-empower the child. So one of the worst things about being abused is you are not empowered. You are powerless. And so what she does is gives them their power back. And the length of time it takes for a child to heal is shrunken dramatically. Um, You'll see uh, in the trailer, you'll see a little three-year-old girl who had been raped at two and thrown into a garbage dump. And when we saw her... She was an amazing, resilient child who really had recovered from what happened to her. I see women across the country here who still haven't recovered, and men who still haven't recovered. I should say that there are not a lot of, there's not a lot of abuse of men going on in Zimbabwe or boy children. Um, you know, Thank God. In that, in that regard, there's probably you know, it's not even measurable. So that's the reason why the Girl Child Network, and she's actually created the Boy Child Network as well, so boys can help change the myth that's going on there. So after a week of shooting, um, on a Monday morning, uh, we were arrested by the Central Intelligence Office in Zimbabwe. Uh, there were 15 Central Intelligence Officers, much like the CIA, who arrested us and took us for interrogation. Um, we actually spent the day being interrogated, and then they let us go home, which in Zimbabwe, in the prison system, there's no food, there's no water. And they wanted us to go home and eat, and then come back in the morning. And for any of you who, <laughs> for any of you who have grown up here, you know that if the police let you go home, you figure well, it can't be that big of a deal, right? So we're going home. We'll go back to get our equipment in the morning. And what happened the next morning is we went back in, and they started interrogating us all over, all over again. But I had the the wherewithal to email Anand the night before, and I said, Anand, if I start call if I start calling your phone, and just hanging up on you, know that I'm really in trouble. And so the next day, as we were getting fingerprinted and my husband had already hired human rights lawyers or the U.S. Embassy was involved, but no one could see us. And I started calling Anand on my phone and hanging up and hanging up. And the trick was to make sure he knew that we were in trouble without letting the police or the central intelligence officers hear me.
2: And, and, and I was making these furious notes.
0: Yeah, he was making furious notes. And, and you were
2: yelling to Lauren.
0: Yes. Well, what had happened is I wanted to make sure, once I got him on the speakerphone, I pretended I was talking to Lauren, my assistant, who was also there in Zimbabwe with me, so that he would know what to do. And at one point, it was very quiet in the police station, and I hear Anand go, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, oh, God, here he is in American. I don't, you know, it, it was a very difficult situation. So, um... Anand and my husband, and uh, a number of people here, were trying to get us out of jail. And um, we were quite surprised. Betty McConey, who is born and raised in Zimbabwe, was not put in prison with us that night. We went alone. And I think it was partly because Betty's work is so powerful there and she's become such a public figure that they were worried about the backlash uh, of imprisoning this woman who saves these children. So we ended up a uh, little over a night in a third world prison and a five by five cell with eight women and you want to talk about being inspired. Um, these women, all of them, were there because they were trying to feed their children. In Zimbabwe it's illegal to sell food on the street and truly there's not a lot of food in Zimbabwe. So, What they would do is they would jump over a border. Uh, Zimbabwe is landlocked and they would jump over to one of the other borders, bring food back and sell it so they can feed their children. So all of them were going to get out and go right back to prison because it was the only way they were going to survive. And at one point I said, at one point in the night, I actually heard all of their stories. One of the women was uh, involved in domestic violence and she was carrying photos of herself. She had been so badly beaten that from the photo you couldn't recognize who she was. And I started crying and, and sort of the leader of the group said to me, why do you cry for us? And I said, you know, I was kind of staggered by the question, why cry for you because your life is so bad. And she said, no, no, no. Our life is okay. We will survive. And what was so inspiring about that is they had so little and they didn't have any higher expectations. And they truly, I found as a whole, were much happier than most people I know here in the United States. So eventually... um, Unbeknownst to us, until I got back, we did get out uh, the next day. We were deported to South Africa, and it wasn't until I got back that I realized, and I say this to everybody, um, don't underestimate the value of Facebook, because it was the gentleman that, who became part of our core team early on, a man out of Greece who, of course, we had never met, who, uh, when I got arrested, Anand had put a little note on our website, and taken down all my blogs, and he had called a friend of his at the CIA and got us out. So it was because of him that we got out and that we got our film out. So um, it is a a great example of those connections out there that you may not realize how valuable they are. And they truly, he saved my life. Um, So we are in the middle of editing this film and one of our key goals, and we've worked with Professor Koznick's class in GEM on creating uh, viral campaigns, creating marketing campaigns, because our goal is to create global awareness of this issue and, of course, eventually create change. So one of the things um, we also talk about, besides the opportunities and asking those three questions about what project we, what we do, is we ask some challenges, and we'd love to talk a little bit about the challenges we've had raising the money for this. Um, So under challenges we talk about raising money. Um, How do you talk about an issue like this that makes people so uncomfortable? And how do you move them from discomfort to action? And uh, the social consciousness aspect versus commercial viability, again that's another. How do you make a film that can raise awareness but can still create
2: a profit? so,
0: Anand, do you want to start talking about raising money a little bit? Or?
2: Yeah. <laughs> we should probably be out raising money. Um, yeah. Um, well, one of, one of the things that, again, speaks to the earlier uh, idea is when we went out to raise money for this project, we met people all, all over the, that, the, the entire spectrum, from people who are doing 100% you know, social entrepreneurship projects and they work for a charity, all the way to you know, someone who invests in, in you know, romantic comedies and uh, you know, in horror films, uh, purely with the intent of making money. And so we met everybody you know, on, on both extremes and everywhere in between. And I think the, the biggest question, I mean, for me, uh, every project that I had raised money for or taken out to raise money for before Tapestries, um, you could fail, obviously, but you could look the investor in the eye and say, well, if we did well, you could make money off of this, but really if, you know, there were two, two or three investors who said, well, I totally trust you, you're doing a great job with this documentary, but can you look me in the eye and tell me that I will make money off of this documentary? And the honest answer is, I don't know, you know, you, I, if, if you want me to say either yes or no, I'll say no, but the honest answer is, I don't know, and that raised a whole bunch of challenges for us in terms of saying, who are we, you know, when we get this movie done, are we going to go the commercial route or are we going to go you know, the social entre- entrepreneurship route? And many films have taken one and the other very successfully. But I think that we saw a lot of successes in both fields where they had left a lot of opportunities uh, uh, unexplored because they hadn't thought about it uh, completely. Uh, an example is uh, we got a chance to meet a couple of people very closely involved with uh, uh, this movie, this documentary called Born Into Brothels, which some, some of you may have seen. It came out in 2004. Um, it's a very, it was a very competitive year, and those of you who are you know, Oscar nominee fans and documentary movie fans, you'll know that 2004 was probably one of the best years in the past 20 years or so for documentary films. But this movie came from behind to just win you know, the Oscar that year. But what they did really well from a film standpoint is they, they said an amazing story and they told a very powerful story but when people watched the movie um, and with all the attention that they got they weren't able to translate someone watching the movie and going I'm inspired by this, I'm moved by this, what can I do to help? There wasn't a very straightforward way to say here are the three things that you could do that could make a difference. You, you don't have to go and get yourself arrested but you could do something. But, and
0: you know what Anand says here is probably the most critical mistake people make either in profit or non-profit in terms of what can I, when I get people inspired, how can we give them a step to take? Go
2: ahead. Yeah. So, um, so th- those, those, that's probably the biggest challenge that we're facing, but I think we're trying to solve a problem that, um, that we're solving from multiple angles. And so there aren't too many you know, case studies that you'd pick up and say, this is how you do it. And so a lot of the trade-offs that we are facing are trade-offs largely because something like this has not been done uh, in this context before. And so there are a lot of people who, you know, for instance, when we, when we spoke in Tom's class uh, la- late last year, um, a couple of people came up and said, well, I'm actually moved by Africa, but I'm not moved by Zimbabwe. So what would you like me to do? Would you like me to still donate to your cause or get involved? Um, tell, tell me what you would recommend that I do. And the honest answer is that if it moves somebody to donate to some cause that is worthy, I think we may have already accomplished you know, as much or more uh, than we started, because the key is to get people to say that even though this may not be what I think about every day, I can still play a little part in, in doing something about it. You know, if someone who sold wireless software for a living can do this, um, you know, anybody can can and you know can easily get involved. So, so that was our biggest challenge: raising money and you know the trade-offs with social consciousness versus you know the commercial saleability. I just wanna-
0: and yeah. a couple things. So we realized that we had a tough challenge raising money. So we did a couple things that were critical. We actually set up a nonprofit and a profit, so people could who were interested in looking at um, ways to do a simple donation that they could get a write-off for. And the other part of it is people who'd say, "Geez, you know what? I'm willing to, bake, to take a risk on you, and I'd love to get involved in the upside." So we gave two opportunities. And then in addition, what we decided to do is, there's a, how many of you know Indiegogo at all? Anybody? Okay. There's a, a number of new models or new prototypes to raising money for films or projects to create social change. And Indiegogo came back, came to us actually back in December and said, we've heard about your film and what you're doing and we'd love to participate with you. So what they did is um, we just created a, a link to them and we talked about what we were doing. and. As of today, in, in the three or four week, maybe four weeks we've been involved with them, we've raised $20,000, which um, I didn't know if you knew today we yeah. hit our second mark. Um, so what we found is instead of going to the traditional distribution models, we've gone right out to the people who, it's not about you know, picking the movie to watch, it's picking the movie you want to see made. And I think that that's helped us a lot. And we're always looking for that. The viral aspects of Facebook have been great to get awareness out there. Even the Stanford relationship has helped us in many ways. But one of the, and and American Idol's a perfect example of, wow, what a great way you can um, create, uh, you know, raise a lot of money. But I think it's a very different, uh, American Idol's a very different example because it's such a powerful audience. It's such a powerful show. And I have not seen a lot of viral efforts create money. You can create viral efforts, but where do you get the funds raised?
2: Well, I think there was, um, we, we had one other sort of category where we wanted to talk a little bit about just our experiences and how this has changed us um, and uh, what, what it has made us uh, sort of, you know, think more about that we hadn't thought as much before. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, the, something that we did in the movie which I think is a very important part of the movie, um, largely because, you know, Michaeline's humble and won't talk about it, um, is we, um, when we started making the movie, we uh, essentially went in saying that we're not going to make this movie about Americans making a movie about Zimbabwe. Uh, What we wanted this to be was just the story of Betty McConey and the girls of Zimbabwe and the issues that they face, and uh, um, you know, we, we shared, uh, a, lot of, a lot of you might have read Mark Tully, you know, he worked in India and he was a BBC um, editor, and one of, one of the things that he said in his book was about how it's very tempting for the journalists to make themselves a part of the story that he or she is writing. And so we started off saying, we're not going to do that, you know, that's, that's the limit that we draw. And then when, you know, prison happened and Zimbabwe happened and they came back, the rest of us basically sat Michaeline down and said, well the movie is, has changed quite a bit. And it's largely that the making of the movie became part of the movie. And, uh, and, and as we looked at that a bit more, uh, with Michaeline's history in child activism and you know, as, as an activist in general, and the fact that she made her previous movie flashcards on child sexual abuse, uh, what we realized is just like Betty's doing her bit to fight child abuse in Zimbabwe, Michaeline has been doing her bit to fight abuse in the States, you know, in, in her communities. So from our standpoint, it changed us significantly where what we went through and what the experience did to us um, quite against our wishes became a part of the movie. So to us, that was a huge uh, change in terms of sort of the structure of the movie and the treatment and how it laid out. And it did delay the movie a little bit, but I I really feel like it identif- people identify with the movie a whole lot better as a result of that kind of massive change. so uh, we, we
0: still agree to disagree. <laughs> we would love to talk just a little bit about what you can do if you're interested in helping, and I know we're going to open it up for Q&A and then um, show the trailer afterwards. Yeah. So do you want to talk about a couple things people can do if they're interested?
2: Yeah, so um, I wouldn't be, we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't finish with this. So essentially, uh, you know, if, if, if you want to get started and just get involved, uh, we have several groups online. You know, we have a blog, we have a group on Facebook. Uh, just become a part of the community, join the group, and you'll, we'll give you updates as and when something interesting is going on. Um, and that's easy. You know, you can do it. You don't have to, you know, go back and do anything. Um, the other thing you could do is, uh, you know, spread the word. There may be either a, an organization that could help finance the movie. We're we're very close to getting the movie completely financed, but. You know, If someone is interested, we'd definitely like to talk about the project with them. So if you know someone who's interested in, in either the social entrepreneurship side of it because they're involved with a cause in Africa and they'd you know, like to talk to us about what we're doing on the social entrepreneurship side, that's great. But if they are, you know, they're interested in funding documentaries, and there are a lot of people who've done that, if you know somebody, definitely have, have them talk to us. We'd love to reach out. Um, the other thing you could do is, uh, like Michaeline said, you know, we're on Indiegogo. A lot of people are sort of saying this movie needs to be made, and they're putting literally putting their money where their mouth is. So you can get involved with Indiegogo and you know get the movie made. There are several different levels at which you can get involved. So you could do that. Um, there are few people that got involved with the project at some level who are coming to work for us in the summer. There are a couple of people in the in the audience, Casimir and yeah. uh, a couple others. So um, if you would like to come work with us, that's great. We can find something that you can you can do and you know, it'll be an amazing experience, you know. And in the next year, um, there's a good chance we'll go to some of the top festivals, uh, you know, Sundance, Tribeca, uh, maybe San Francisco. And so it'll be a great experience for you to get involved with that. But also, you know, Michaeline was invited to the UN uh, to talk about child abuse. So there's a good chance we'll show the movie at an outlet like the UN. So whichever angle kind of inspires you, we'd love to talk to you about in getting involved. The
0: coming up. We have lots of jewelry that you could give to your mother, and all the proceeds go to the young girls in Zimbabwe. So with that, I think we'd love to open it up for question and answer um, and then show the trailer. Any Please questions?
1: Repeat the questions when they say it so that they, they can hear it on the mic.
0: Got it. Any questions? Yes?
1: I wanted to come back to um, this, what you said, and I, that was one of the really difficult problems that if you go to a so of the standard um, sources of capital, and um, you say, well, if we do well, you know, we'll make money. So in this case, you couldn't, you didn't have a satisfactory answer, you know. So did you, were you able to come to eventually an answer, or do you, were you able to find a different kind of investor that was okay with, I don't know, or some other value that you were going to offer?
2: Well, so there is a uh, So statistically, the top 0.5% maybe of documentaries every year do make money, right? So the goal is what, you never know what other documentaries are getting made every year because you're so deep in the trenches making this film that you don't know what Michael Moore is working on, right? <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and, and, if, and essentially, if Michael Moore is making a movie or Errol Morris is making a movie, that movie is going to be the documentary that attracts most of the press and the money and the attention and the audiences. So you really have no idea what else is going on out there, and especially now it doesn't cost a lot of money to make a good documentary. So there are a lot of people who are not based in the US or who are not even documentary filmmakers who are making good documentaries. So it's, it's a little bit like we're living in the YouTube world, right? So standards have come down, costs have come down, And so it is a lot easier than you think to make a documentary. And it's also quite easy to make a good documentary. And of course, the best documentaries are obviously really, you know, in a different orbit. But, you know, so ignoring them for a second. uh, So statistically speaking, it's not very easy to make money on a documentary. So you're not only counting on you doing a great job, but everything else that's going on. So what we looked for was just investors that were okay with that uncertainty. And still believed on the social side of what we were doing.
0: I think you really have to tap into the heart of people, and it has to be something they're passionate about. Absolutely. And I find, certainly, if you show the stories of the children, it's very hard not to uh, be moved. Yes? What
1: kind of numbers are we talking about for complete production?
0: Um, He asked, what kind of numbers are we talking about for complete production? Um, Actually, this film, when completed, will probably cost us roughly about $250,000, which is very, very cheap on the documentary side. Um, We actually just had a donation uh, for complete post-production on this, including special effects and animation, which in itself is uh, worth a great deal. So we're very, very close, and we expect to be done by August. Other questions? Yes?
1: The last of your three bullets is create change, and you're certainly doing a great job of in creating global awareness. What's the change, what's the takeaway, call to action that you want from the movie? And is it something that we could implement right now?
0: Good question.
2: Did you bring your checkbook? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> she asked, um, what could we do now? Could, what is the, what's the takeaway from this project and what we could do right now to create change? and I think the net-net of everything we're doing is we want to create global outreach so yes you can you can start virally spreading this and say look you know you'll see in the in the little trailer you know we're not we're we're talking about young girls but we're also talking about infants we're talking about one day olds that are being gang raped and if that doesn't hit you and tell you my god I want to help stop this then probably nothing will so how you can help is start spreading the word and we hope, go ahead. I, I, had,
2: I had another, I mean, from, from what Betty was saying last week, the, the important point, though, is like people like, uh, you know, the girls of the GCN um, everywhere, they don't need anybody's mercy. You know, they don't need anybody's sympathy. They're mostly happy. I mean, they're good to go. But they just don't have opportunity to do most of the things that they want to do. So when, when we say let's donate some money, you know, a lot of times Betty says that her job is in danger, not because Mugabe is going to take her out of power, but some girl will do so well that she'll want to be the director of the GCN. Um, and apparently the girls come to her and say, we don't want to be the directed anymore. We want to be the director of the GCN. So they, they're as ambitious as anyone at Stanford, anyone in the States, you know, anyone uh, with an Ivy League education. All they need is kind of access to opportunity. So what we're looking to do is sort of go beyond the, oh, the poor children of Africa kind of mentality, um, and, and sort of say, here are specific things that you could sort of uh, get involved with and either donate to or, uh, you know, help make the movie. So, that, so the, w- the reason we chose mass media is because um, Betty could go around and talk to small groups, but the word could get out a lot quicker if it's a mass media. And
0: and you'd be amazed at how little bit of money... Uh, For example, $50 will keep a girl in school for six months. Um, So, you you know, something we spend on lunch sometimes would help them. Yes?
1: So I'm thinking about um, if they need scholarships to get educated to reach for their dreams. That's one thing. Another, though, is what we do at Stanford, uh, business plan competition. Somebody wants to start a business and they want to get funded and they think it's viable, we uh, have... The short question is, Uh, is anybody giving the Girl-Child Network an opportunity to learn how to start businesses and then to get the businesses financed, either micro-lending or micro equity or whatever else, so that they could start doing whatever it is they want to do?
0: Yeah, the short answer to that is um, no. What was it that asked? Short (laughs) question. (laughs) Could you repeat that, Tom? the, The short question is,
1: What about an idea like either a business plan, competition, or something, if they want to... Business may not be the only thing, but whatever they want to do to create value, give them help, not a handout, but financing, so that they can create the value.
0: Yeah, the question was really about creating a business plan or helping them develop financing. I mean, it's all about the sustainable issues. Um, And the short answer is no, and I think it's something that we would love to take on um, at some point. Yes.
1: I have a question as to which you said earlier that you spoke to these um,
2: tribal doctors, and what did you, what did they say to you when you confronted them about what they've been doing or what they've been saying?
0: The question was uh, about reference to the tribal doctors and why they were doing this. Um, it's very complicated. I think it's a couple of things. Um, there, there's a besides the myth that if you rape a virgin you'll cure your AIDS, many people think that it's rural, uneducated men who are doing it, and that is not the case. These are college-educated family men with children of their own who you would see on the street and think, absolutely not. I think um, traditional healers, uh, there's been a great deal of Western influence, so they're losing their power. AIDS is a relatively new epidemic there, and so they are feeling powerless and um, it is a way, for whatever reason, historically in Zimbabwe, uh, women, virgins' blood, and vir- being a virgin is a very powerful entity. I think there's a little bit of witchcraft in their history as well. So even before the onset of AIDS, uh, men would kidnap young girls and cut their skin and take a vial of blood out. And so they would put the vial of blood in their stores and the idea that is, if you have that vial of blood in your stores that you will be very rich, that people will you know, be drawn to your stores. So there's a little bit of that that has gone on for probably from the beginning of time. And I think that that evolved with the traditional healers. I think there's a lot of power issues going on and there's a great deal of poverty and desperation. I mean it's the number one AIDS capital and when a witch doctor or traditional healer says to you, if you rape a virgin it will cure your AIDS, I mean just, I'm not excusing it, but on some level here's someone who's desperate who probably has their own family. And how do I find a way to survive this? So uh, it's very complicated. We do explore that in the documentary.
2: Last question. Yes. Uh, so are you guys hoping for some form of political change as well, where in some way the international community sort of uh, affecting the political situation in Zimbabwe and you, I mean, sort of trying to affect that and cause that to change things with the situation, or are you primarily focusing more on just bottom-up change, focusing on the girls and the
0: his question was whether we were looking at um, creating political change to affect the situation or uh, sort of a groundswell, bottoms up approach to the girls learning and developing. Um, I don't believe the situation in Zimbabwe will change very soon. One of two things will happen is someone will kill President Mugabe or he will remain in power until he dies. And I believe his mother lived till over 100. Um, So it's not something the people of Zimbabwe are looking forward to. Even the UN this morning had said they don't want to get involved. Um, I think when we talk about human rights issues that part of why Zimbabwe you don't hear about it like Darfur or the Congo is because Mugabe has put a lock on the press and you can't hear. And if you talk to people in some of the other southern countries most will say that Zimbabwe is probably the worst country in southern Africa right now. So um, there have been people who've listened. I spent some time in Washington D.C. I spoke at the UN. I spoke at Amnesty. The problem is um, anyone who's been concerned, they're on the political circuit, and it's kind of hard to tell whether they really are concerned about the issue or it's something uh, for political gain. So I, I wish I had an answer to that. Um, I, Did that yeah?
2: of our thing come from the movie budget? Did what? Did the DC trip come from a movie picture? It's such a waste of time.
0: <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> All right, so we'd love to, at this point, um, show the trailer. Can we do that? Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.